Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. On the last episode of Guilt uh, in order to be found guilty, uh, WorkSafe doesn't necessarily have to prove uh, that A plus B equals C, um, because if there was a, a an element of risk due to, in this case, a deficiency with fencing, um, then for a health and safety offence, uh, that is sufficient. He said, I've been down there too, and I wouldn't stay in there. And I thought to myself, Here's a baby, more, but more than a baby, and they're all pissing up and yahooing and carrying on and nobody seems to be worrying about it. There's something funny going on here, really. Like the, the kids didn't seem to worry, they weren't worried about it, you know. They obviously didn't like Lockie for a start. About every second time I went around this place, I told him my son was in danger. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. I lied to you. Well, perhaps I didn't lie. But I've decided to amend the plan for this mini-series. I said in the last episode, there were two more left. Well, instead, I'm going to officially conclude with this, episode five. As I said when we started this season, it was going to be condensed. If you know me and this podcast, then you'll know damn well that if I'd been able to take on this case like I normally would, we'd be going incredibly deep in this investigation. I'd be speaking to experts in drowning, interviewing friends, witnesses, emergency staff and police, diving into alternative scenarios. I'd be knocking on every door on that street. This season would have been as long as it needed to be until every avenue had been explored. It really pains me to only give it such a superficial look. But obviously, it's not meant to be. And we'll move on to our next case very shortly. 
and you can expect a return to my normal thoroughness. However, I have a treat for you in episode 6, and that's a special guest. The award-winning Melanie Reed is going to join us for an interview where we'll discuss this case, her upcoming podcast, and we're going to chat to her about her amazing career and also some of the other cases she's worked on, like the David Bain and the Peter Ellis case. It'll be an interview you don't want to miss. In this episode, I'm going to briefly touch on a number of key pieces of evidence in this case that we haven't yet discussed. I'm just going to throw things at you. It might seem a bit disjointed, but by the end of this episode and this mini-series, you should have a good overall but basic understanding of the key elements of this case. So with that in mind, wherever you are, in your car, on the couch, going for a run, pay attention. Because right now, you're going to hear, for the first time, Lockie's mother's side of the story through her police statement. Let's get into it. Let me remind you that Lockie's mother has never spoken to the media about this case. And that's her right. And while personally I believe it would be of a huge help for the public to get a better understanding of what took place, her decision not to do so is not an indication of any criminal act. It's quite possible that what you're about to hear is the closest thing you're ever going to get to that happening. Before we go on, it's important to highlight the time of this police interview being February the 8th, 2019, 10 days after Lachlan's death. Some elements I've deemed not relevant have been removed for time. I want you to try and consider what you hear objectively and with an open mind. Don't necessarily look to jump to conclusions, but consider everything in the context of everything else you've heard. This statement has been read by an actor. I live in Salford Street with two of my three sons, Jonathan and Lachlan. Cameron lives in Dunedin. Lachlan's father is Paul Jones. Cameron and Jonathan have a different father. Paul and I split up in August of 2018 and I have an interim parenting order in the day-to-day care of Lachlan. Lachlan was three and a half years old. Paul has visitation rights and can stay nights at our home address in Gore. Paul came and stayed Sunday and Monday night so he could spend time with Lachlan. Paul drives for NZ Careers but lives in Invercargill with his father and stepmother. I thought he was going to stay on Tuesday night as well but he had to get his hair cut in Invercargill. He usually stays on the mattress in the lounge. This time he slept in my bed and I slept in the lounge. On Monday the 28th January I took Lockie to Kindy as per usual. He Usually goes 10.30am until 2.30pm. Lachlan had a runny nose in the last couple of days. I thought about not sending him to kindy, but Paul said it was a sunny day and it would be okay. Lachlan was still bubbly and happy enough. He went to kindy on Monday and Tuesday this week. When we went to leave kindy on Monday, Lockie wanted to say goodbye to Kingston, and he did a full-on hug of him. Normally it's a wee hug, but this was a full-on hug of him. That wasn't usual. It was out of the ordinary. It was bigger than normal. I thought 
You're a kind and loving boy. He had a big sleep on Monday night, 13 hours, and got up for the day on Tuesday at about 10 a.m. He went to kindy during the day as usual. It, it had been a very hot and sunny day. He finished at 2.30 p.m., and he gave hugs to three girls who go there. Lockie has been going to kindy since he was 18 months old, and at kindy he would open the gate, and he would always want to open the door to come home. He would not let me do it. He liked the gates and doors. If he got to the car before me, I would open the door and put him in the car. If he would get in, he would jump in quick and lock the door. He thought it was a fun game. I didn't. On that day, he locked the door of the car on me. He sat in the driver's seat and said, Can I drive, Mum? But I had a magnetic key and used that. When he learned to climb onto the bench at home, I threw away all the medication in the house. I was trying to remove all the risks. A recent thing he liked doing was to run away from me and hide. After Kinder, I went home and I would have dropped Jonathan off at work. I went to the courier depot in Gore. I usually consign the RD parcels and get them ready and sometimes into the scanner for the next day delivery. I do other jobs at the depot to fill in the time until it's time to pick Jonathan up from work. I usually pick him up about 5.15, 5.30pm and then headed home. It was a very hot evening. I had been outside in the evening trying to fix the hose and sprinkler for Lockie to play in. I was out there for a while trying to fix it and get it going for him. Paul had told me to get a paddling pool, but I thought it was too risky and unsafe, as I would have to keep emptying it out each night to keep Lockie safe. Lockie had been hosing me with the hose as a game. I think I phoned for pizza on the home line at about 7.30pm. I couldn't be bothered cooking. I checked my FPOS and I had driven down and paid for the pizza at 7.44pm. Johnny was at home looking after Lockie in the lounge. Johnny didn't want pizza, so was in the kitchen looking for something to eat. Then Lockie came to me saying he had pooed. He still wears a nappy. I also said he had a dirty face and we need to wash it, so I washed his face. He went and lay down on the change mat in the lounge, but he jumped back up again and ran off inside the house. I went to change him twice and he ran off each time. I was chasing him around inside the house. He was getting quick and he would climb on the box in the lounge. Uh, that was his police cell. I said, buggy you, Lockie, and I gave up. He treats it like a bit of a game. Usually I make sure all the doors are closed before I try and change him. I'm pretty sure all the doors were shut, but they wouldn't have been locked. And then my phone was going flat, so I did at one stage take it into my room to put it on the charger. At about 9pm I went to help Johnny with his weights. It wasn't for a long time. Johnny had been calling out for me to go down to the room in the house where he was. I set the wall clock for about 10 minutes fast. I think it was about 9.15pm on the clock, so it must have been about you know, 9pm. I had run up the hallway to go help Johnny. He needed me to help him with the weights to incline them so they didn't fall on top of him. I went into the room and shut the door behind me. I was being cautious that Lockie wouldn't follow me into the room in case the weights fell on him. I helped lift the weight, then walked out into the kitchen and looked out the window. I saw the yellow vest and thought that could look like Lockie. I called out to Lockie. I thought he was playing in the lounge. I went into the lounge and saw his program had finished on the TV. I realised it was Lockie running down the street. I ran outside, down the driveway and onto the footpath... I ran up behind Lockie and caught up with him about a house before Debbie's. I said, Lockie, you shouldn't run away. You are naughty. You shouldn't run away. 
I wasn't growling. It was in a normal voice, trying to explain not to run away. I said, you might as well say hello to Debbie now. That was at the side door of Debbie's house that opens into the driveway. Lockie knocked on the door and I walked into the house. Lockie was in front of me. I said, Debbie, it's us. I went past Lockie and spoke to Debbie. I said, we're not staying. Lockie had pooed his nappy and I really need to change him. I had Lockie standing at the door out of the corner of my eye. He was about a metre into the house. He had his high-vis vest on. I said, we had been running late for tea tonight. I had been trying to get the sprinkler to go for Lockie earlier and it wouldn't work. We had pizza for tea, as had she. It was a short conversation. Debbie started to talk about being down at Slope Point where the two fishermen had swept off the rock. I sort of cut her short and told her I needed to get going. I recall saying, I gotta go, I gotta go. Then I didn't see Lockie. It was only a short 30 second conversation with her. I thought he had gone either to the swing at the back of the house or home to our place. Lockie had bare feet so he would run faster than if he had shoes on. He was wearing a black and white kid's police cap, blue t-shirt with a shark on it, grey, red Spider-Man singlet, camo-coloured green shorts, full nappy and plunket hivers vest. I didn't see him out the back and I ran out. He wasn't on the street at all. I looked up both ways of Salford Street. I thought I would easily see him as it was such a short amount of time and he had his vest on. Thinking back, he may have been hiding from me. Debbie came out and said, he's gone home, he's gone home. We jogged back to my house. I had my flip-flops on. We searched. I was looking around as I was running. I looked up Totara Street and driveways. He's gone up Totara Street before with his bike to feed animals. I thought he might be in my car hiding, as that's his hiding place sometimes. I looked into the car and I tried the door, but it was locked. He wasn't there. I went inside the house to Johnny's room and said, Johnny, Lockie's gone. I can't find him. I need you to come help me. He was standing in his room. It was like he had come from doing the weights and was heading in to get on to his computer. Johnny just looked at me. Cameron was at his father's house. Johnny would just have thought, it's just another time. I do panic when I can't find Lockie. One other time I was running about panicking and Lockie was just in the bathroom the whole time. I thought he was missing. When I saw he wasn't back at our house, I was frantic then. I searched all the house. Deb said, the park, the park. So we ran down to the park and could see he wasn't there. That's towards the main street of Gore, left of my house, if you run out of the driveway onto Salford Street. If he had been at the park, he would have been at the swing. So we didn't go into the park. We could see it from where we were standing. I ran back and around my section, checked the tent behind the apple tree and behind the garden bed and shed. I was frantic by this stage as he was not at home nor the park. We turned around and fast-walked, looking into the properties as we went up to Debbie's house. We were going there quick. Then she opened her door and went up the hallway of her house. We looked in the garage and then the section. It could have been ten minutes of running around searching at this stage. She carried on looking there. I walked down a bit and I thought he may have been hiding behind a fence. I was yelling out for Lockie and walking down Salford Street towards Wigan Street. I saw girls on a trampoline. There were a few houses down. I was thinking to myself, have they hit Lockie? They are kind of tricksters in there. I mean, I was hesitating to talk to them. Then I was standing, looking into the section. I walked a few more houses down to the greenhouse. I was walking back, shaking my head at Debbie, saying, I can't find him. Debbie called out to the girls. Maybe ten minutes had passed by then. She asked if they had seen a little boy. I think they said, yeah, he ran that way. 
that was the opposite to where we had looked. It was towards the river, and I panicked even more. I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen him go that way. He's never been past Debbie's. Tonight was the first time he went to Debbie's on his own. I knew I should have shut our gate, but I thought we were getting ready for bed soon. I couldn't afford to fix the fencing at my place. Me and Debbie ran down that way. I thought water ponds and river, that's the first thing I thought of. I got to the end of where Grassland's Road is. There were girls on their bikes. I was hesitating and looking and searching. I thought the river was the risk. I thought the ponds would be fenced. I rang Cameron and told him Lockie was missing and I told him to come help find him. I saw Kim Marshall. She said she would go and look at the ponds. I thought, I need to call the police. But I thought, it's not 24 hours yet. Lockie hasn't been missing for 24 hours. But that's American police on TV. Paul used to give me grief, saying the police were sick of me calling. He used to verbally abuse me and I called him five or six times. He said they probably think I'm a nutcase. I then phoned 555. I, I got confused. I thought, he's only been gone for 20 minutes. We'd gone up and down Salford Street. The girls had biked up Wigan Street. Then I rang Cam and I, I think he said ring 111. He thought I was running around the house and didn't take it seriously. He didn't know we were out on the street looking for him. I walked around Grasson's Road on the phone to 555 while I was listening to what was being said on the call answering machine. Then I looked at the ponds. I climbed over a wooden plank fence beside the wire gate. I followed the track and stood up on the bank looking for a bright yellow vest. I didn't know there were two ponds. I just thought there was one pond. I couldn't see his vest. I thought he hadn't got here. I was looking at the water. I rang 111 emergency. This was at, you know, 9.35 p.m. It was getting dark. I thought if I called the police and he saw a police car, he may come out from where he was. He loves the police and he has his own outfit with a cap. I remember talking to the police when I was on Grasson's Road. The police kept me on the phone and told me to walk back home. I was on the phone to them for quite a while. My older boys knew Lachlan was missing, but they thought I was just panicking about nothing and Lockie was just hiding. That's what he does sometimes. The police said they were going to get search and rescue. I hung up on her and then spoke to another policeman outside my house. Then the constable arrived with his police dog. I phoned Paul after I'd spoken with the police and had gone back out to the rear section to look for Lockie again. I didn't want to panic him because I thought police would find him, but Debbie told me I better ring him. He is his son. I told him Lockie was missing and the police were searching for him. Paul was good on the phone saying, My boy, he's gone, he's gone. I was trying to calm him down a bit, saying, It's okay, they'll find him. When Paul arrived, he stormed into the house. He grabbed his bag of stuff from staying the night before. Jonathan did cook up some tea. He does that after he does his weights. Cam arrived after I had phoned him. I don't know what time he turned up. I was told to stay there and wait by the police. Different friends of mine turned up at different times, but I don't know what times. Usually I shut the door and take the key out and put it on the shelf. The door was shut and it sort of jams a bit. That's the door from the kitchen to outside. Lockie has never used the hallway door. It's usually snipped. Usually I will shut the gate if Lockie is outside. You have to lift the gate and then tie it shut. You can't latch it. We caught him one day, climbing out the fence into Irene's house. He got a good growling, but he didn't do it again. She lives on the park side of our house. At home, he watches a clip called The Gingerbread Man, where all the people would chase after the gingerbread man. Maybe he thought that's what would happen. 
He has taken off from her before. When I went to Debbie's place to fix her TV and he took off, he headed back home, so I got him into the house and got the older boys to look after him while I went back to Debbie's. That was on Saturday, just gone, 26th of January, 2019. Look, he doesn't like being submerged. He doesn't like his head underwater. He would gravitate towards water games. He had never walked past Debbie's house on Salford Street, and we had never walked to the ponds. He was good with everyone. The only person he ever questioned was the lady from Women's Refuge. She arrived at our house and he said, Who are you? She said, I'm a friend of your mum's. He said, No, you're not. When are you leaving? He was very wary of her. This was unusual, but Paul had told him not to talk to strangers. He may have overheard us talking about some stuff about Paul. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I know that was a lot to digest, and I'm sure you'll probably go back and listen to it again. As this is not an investigative season, I'm not going to dive into details, but a couple things to mention here. Firstly, the accusations made in this statement by Michelle about Paul's verbally abusive behaviour and calling the police have not been verified by me. When listening to this statement, you likely had one of two feelings. Either this seems suspicious, or it's just the tragic recounting of a mother losing her son. And let's be clear, aside from the strange circumstances around the discovery of Lockie's body, there are no indications of any type of foul play on behalf of Michelle or her sons. Of course, there are questions. Why would Michelle call Star 555, New Zealand's car crash reporting line, as opposed to 111, New Zealand's general emergency line? Is this an indication of something suspicious, or simply a mother under incredible stress making a mistake? It certainly seems odd, but until you've been in a situation like that, it's difficult to know how you'd react you would likely have noticed another key section of this statement. It's the single most important piece of evidence in this case. And if my understanding is correct, it's what the police ultimately relied on in determining Lockie's death was no more than a tragic accident. And that's the apparent sighting of Lockie running past in the direction of Grasslands Road by the girls on the trampoline. I'd dearly love to have had the chance to speak to these girls, 
as it's here that the whole case seems to rest. But instead, I'll just give you a brief excerpt from one of their sworn police statements, taken the day after Lockie's death. No age is given on this police statement, so this witness, who I won't name, is under the age of 18. I've removed some elements of this statement for clarity and time. Last night I was over at Marshall's house, which is next door to our place. I went there about 8.30pm, maybe a little earlier. I know from a conversation on Instagram that I was having before I went that it was around 7.45pm when I first went next door. I went to cover some books and do a fake tan. Me and Marshall were sitting at the table in their dining room when I saw Lockie go past. I'm not sure exactly what time it was, but I think it was around 8.30pm because I was talking to my friend on Snapchat. When I saw Lockie, at first I thought he was my other neighbour. He was heading towards Grasslands Road. He was running quite fast. He was wearing a yellow high-vis top, but I didn't get a very good look. I left Marshall's place to come home pretty much as soon as he went past. I saw a glimpse of Lockie again. He was at the corner of Salford Street and Grasslands Road. He'd slowed down and was either slower walking or running. Clearly, if this witness statement is 100% accurate, then this would be incredibly important. A first-hand account of Lockie running or walking towards Grasslands Road, which is the access to the oxidation ponds. This would point to the scenario that Lockie did, strange as it would seem, make his own way to where he was found. I'm not going to cover it in this miniseries, but Paul disputes this sighting, and believes that the witness was instead mistaken, and that she had in fact seen one of her other neighbours, also small children. And this is largely due to some inconsistencies she makes in the remainder of her statement, which calls into question how credible the sighting truly is. If I was listening to this right now, I'd likely be thinking, this just sounds like a father trying to find any possible angle to refute what appears to be a coherent witness statement. And I believe that would be a fair assessment. But the reality is that in this case, there is so much evidence pointing towards something more that it can't just be easily written off as a vengeful father. Another of these hard-to-explain points is related to the discovery of Lockie's body by the police dog handler and the fact that despite the dog being used in the area of Grasslands Road where Lockie would have most likely had to walk, the handler was only able to detect a scent 40 metres from where his body was found partly submerged. Clearly, more work is needed on this point. But I'd have assumed, maybe incorrectly, that a toddler, in bare feet, with a full nappy, would leave quite the scent trail. But maybe I'm wrong. Paul has his own theory as to Lockie's discovery. So it was a dog handler that actually found him? According to them, 
Yeah. I, but I think that someone had found him and then called the dog handler because I never seen the dog handler got any scent towards where Lockie was. And in his statement, he says, "Oh no, we got a scent forty metres out." So there wasn't. I don't think it was a dog handler that found him. I think it was a volunteer fireman that actually found him and called the dog handler over. That's my view on the matter. Yeah, he had circled the pond and that, and eventually with a flashlight, I think, in the statement he said he uh, um, seen Lockie. But there was a. Um, uh, Kim Marshall circled the ponds and that, yeah. and Lockie had a bright vest on, but she never saw Lockie. Yeah, according to her statement. Yeah, and she was if her time matches up with this with the time um, on a timeline that she gives, she must have been right behind Lockie when he was heading to the ponds. And I said to the police, uh, Stu Harvey, I said, well, that sort of doesn't add up because she would have been. Uh, right behind Lockie, if your timelines are right. And she goes, oh, no, she couldn't catch Lockie or, or uh, wouldn't have been able to, uh, to get to him because she was in bare feet. And I said, oh, hang on a minute. My, my son was in bare feet as well. And, uh, you know, it, just, it was just getting ridiculous, you know. Yeah. It's like they didn't even, you know, there was no even common sense put into it, let alone the practical side of what the police should have done that night, you know. Mm. Since then, they, they, you know, they've got no answers. You yeah. know, they know it's not right. You know, this is ridiculous. Kim Marshall is a friend of Michelle's who was involved in the search for Lockie that night. And according to her statement, she walked around the ponds looking for a bright vest and apparently never saw Lockie, who was semi-submerged in his bright vest only a couple metres from the edge of the pond. At the time of Paul's arrival at Michelle's, he recalls that he stormed in the door, obviously furious that everyone was inside while a search was going on outside for Lockie. And it was at this time that Paul recalls another friend of Michelle's, Debbie, making a very odd statement. So I walked in there and I thought, oh, oh, bloody hell, thank goodness. And uh, she goes, oh, thank goodness what? I said, oh, oh, where's Lockie in that? Because they're all sitting there having tea and they're watching Shortland Street and they had all their friends there. and, And I said, oh, where's Lockie in that? She goes, oh, I don't know. I said, oh, what do you mean? She said, oh, I think the police are looking for them, for him. I said, oh, hang on a minute. And uh, I said, nothing fucking better happened to her. And uh, her friend, her friend goes, oh, she coming out and said, oh, settle down, mate. Sit down and remember the good times. That's what she said to me. She said, oh, have a coffee and sit down and remember the good times. I said, what do you fucking mean, you bitch? And I sort of went off. And then all these kids, all the oldest boys, mates and that he had around there, they're up there playing PlayStation, all pushed me up the door and locked the door on me. Remember the good times. At this point, Lockie was still missing, and as far as everyone believed, was still alive. A strange thing to say under the circumstances. And in this case, the strange things just pile up. One after the other. And none would be more so than the next two I'm about to mention. The position of Lockie's body in the water and the stunning discovery that he had no water in his lungs. You'd assume correctly if you said most drowning bodies are discovered floating face down particularly in the case of still water. 
and this water was described in one constable's statement as stagnant. How does a person drown in stagnant water face up? While it is rare, it can happen. But of course, the question might be, was Lockie deceased before he went into the pond? If Lockie was hurriedly placed in the pond, could this possibly explain him being found face up? And this would also explain the next piece of evidence, which can't be described as anything other than bombshell. Lockie had no water in his lungs. This part of the case is where Melanie Reed is going to be able to provide in-depth factual analysis. And I know much of her podcast will be focusing on this crucial evidence. It was through her investigation and the consultation of a world-leading forensic pathologist from the UK that it was discovered that Lockie's lungs were not waterlogged and heavy as may be expected in a drowning case. They were in fact lighter than a normal child of his age. And that, in her belief, it is not safe to provide drowning as a cause of death. There are a number of damning details about the original pathology report on Lockie's body. The fact that the original pathologist was not a forensic pathologist, as would normally be used in the case of sudden, unexpected or suspicious deaths such as this, and was neither trained for nor had the experience to perform the required post-mortem. And according to Paul, has since stated that he was never comfortable performing the autopsy at all. As I've mentioned before, Mel's podcast should cover this case in much greater detail than I've been able to in this shortened series. The working title of her podcast is The Boy in the Water. But as previously mentioned, we'll chat to Mel very soon about the podcast and its release date. Split families can be difficult at best. And it's apparent that the relationship between Michelle and Lockie and her other two sons is one which appears to be quite contrasting. And this couldn't have been highlighted more by something Michelle said to Paul, and I found when reading Paul's father Graham's police statement. And this was a comment made by Michelle that her boys, and I'm assuming this means Cameron and Jonathan, would be getting everything in her will. And Lachlan, he would be getting nothing. Graham recalls that this always stuck in his mind, and that it had made Paul quite upset as well. I'll add that other than Paul's confirmation and Graham's statement, I can't verify this. But Paul is 100% adamant that this occurred. I also don't know the context. Could this have been said during an argument by Michelle to wind Paul up? Very possibly. But either way, it's certainly a cruel and hurtful thing to say, whether it's meant literally or not. And we can't forget that even by Paul's own admission, he's no angel, and has said nasty things about Cameron and Jonathan in the heat of the moment too. But I feel it really highlights the divide in the family. And then it wasn't just Paul who was an outsider, but Lockie too. We've discussed the WorkSafe case in some detail, so you're familiar with it. Well, I was contacted yesterday by Paul, who advised me of a recent press leak, 
and a significant one. Documents released revealed that the council had decided to pay Paul's legal bill of $30,390 owed to a law firm, which was attempting to get the police case reopened prior to the WorkSafe trial. If there was ever an indication of the fact that the council believed the police hadn't properly investigated Lockie's death, this is it. I feel like I could go on about all the details of this case forever. And to be honest, I probably could. There's still so much more to cover. I haven't even spoken about Cameron and Jonathan's statements, cell phone tower evidence, and so much more. And then, of course, we need to consider all the evidence pointing toward no foul play. If he was murdered, how was he transported to the site? During the day, past houses without being seen. Can the lack of marks on Lockie's feet be explained by the 600mm concrete cap that runs around the edge of the ponds? Did Lockie simply walk along this cap, then eventually fall? Could Lockie have been the victim of the rare occurrence known as dry drowning, where a person, more often a small child, can asphyxiate without water filling the lungs? Lockie didn't like his head being submerged, Could this have brought on this rare phenomenon? And of course, we have the young witness who claims she saw Lockie running in the direction of the ponds. All things to be investigated. But like I said, this is a mini-series. And for now, sadly, it's time for this series to end. Lachlan's death is that tragedy that every parent fears. It's that nightmare that wakes you up at two in the morning, drenched with sweat, your heart racing, followed by that wave of relief as you realise it was all just a dream. Well, for Paul, it wasn't. This was the nightmare from which he never woke. Only this nightmare came with not only the tragic death of his only son, his little Lockie, but also with the horrible truth of a botched police investigation and the never-ending pain of no closure. No answer to the one question of a father a town, a council, and now the world. What happened to Lockie Jones? Yeah, it's horrifying, but you know it's you know it definitely doesn't get any easier, mate. But I, I need to I need to try and um, you know put a yeah get him some closure and some justice and that you know mate if I even thought there was one percent chance he walked out of there knowing him and that mate I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing but you know there's you know even my dad and that has just ruined his life as well you know he knew what a wee fella meant to me and that you know yeah and he's you know he just he's distraught you know he's yeah, yeah we'll get we'll get there mate
This was a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced, and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode. A massive thank you to Mirabai Peace. It really can be challenging to find actors for voice work, and it was at super short notice, and I'm forever appreciative. At the time of writing, Mirabai is starring the blockbuster Evil Dead Rise, which has already grossed $131 million, and is well worth a watch if you want to never sleep again. Hers is a career heading in only one direction. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with hundreds of other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group, with now over 800 members. I'd like to remind you that Season 4 of Guilt will feature a brand new case and will be coming very soon. Make sure you've hit the follow button on whatever platform you're listening to be sure you're notified the moment of its release. And please, share the podcast on your socials and tell your friends. Guilt is a 100% independent production. Unlike other New Zealand podcasts, we've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding. You can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was produced 100% without the use of AI. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.